This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to, to get a chance to visit with Dr. Christopher Kane. Dr. Kane is both the Dean of Clinical Affairs and the CEO of the University of San Diego, University of California San Diego Physician Group. Uh, he's also a long-term naval veteran who spent a more than a decade in the U.S., a couple decades in the U.S. Navy. Uh, thrilled to get a chance to visit with you, Dr. Kane. Can you take a moment and introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, I'm, again, Chris Kane. I'm um, currently at UC San Diego and the CEO of the Physician Group, which is basically our medical group structure uh, at UC San Diego Health. And I'm Dean of Clinical Affairs, so leading the clinical environment um, here at UC San Diego, of course, with a partnership of many other senior leaders. Patty Mason's the CEO of our health system and our physician group, our medical group structure here, uh, we're really in an integrated health system. And we in the physician group are responsible not just for professional billing and the normal physician group or medical group functions, but we also are responsible for all the clinical space and all of those clinical employees. And uh, before uh, this opportunity, uh, I've been in this role for about two years, I was chair of the Department of Urology and I'm a urologic oncologist, primarily prostate cancer surgeon. I still have a, a clinical practice, although it's smaller than it used to be. And as you mentioned before, my career here at UC San Diego, I was actually at UC San Francisco uh, for seven years. And before that, I was in the Navy, and I spent 16 years on active duty and eight years in the reserves and had a wonderful uh, naval career before transitioning uh, back to academic medicine. So what a magnificent career. Take a moment first and talk about just the transition from the Navy to, you know, by practice and out of the Navy into UC San Diego or talk about that for a moment, what that transition was like. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I was at a point in my Navy career where I'd been here at the Naval Medical Center San Diego, which is one of our largest naval hospitals uh, in the world, and I had run the uh, urology training program and was really a busy surgeon in what felt very similar to an academic medical center, and I'd been doing that for about seven years. So when my um, uh, obligated service was complete with the Navy and I had an opportunity to think about whether I should continue in my Navy career or move on, uh, the thing that excited me the most about my career was was teaching and research as well as the clinical care. And so I decided to leave the Navy at that point and go back to uh, academic medicine where I trained. And I had an opportunity to go to UC San Francisco. And it was really a wonderful environment. I was able to be chief of urology at the VA Medical Center San Francisco and uh, kind of re-engaged in research and education. And um, I'm, I'm glad I did. I think academic medicine's kind of the right fit for me. And then I had an opportunity to come here to UC San Diego uh, now 14 years ago to lead what at that time was a small division of urology. And um, we were able to, to grow our team and uh, improve our, our performance in the three main domains of any academic department and ultimately became an academic uh, department uh, here at UC San Diego Health. So for me, the transition wasn't 
too big of a revolution because I was really teaching residents and providing clinical care in an educational environment in the Navy for those you know prior years. The the part of the Navy that was really fun for me that I I still miss is the operational uh, part where you get to go and support the Navy and Marine Corps around the world. I, I was fortunate to serve in the first Persian Gulf War with a Marine Corps battalion, and that was a although you know challenging experience because of the environment, it was a great learning experience being around Marines in combat. And um, and I learned a huge amount in that experience. And I got to be the ship surgeon on the Mercy later in my career. Um, and so I just had really fun operational opportunities in the Navy. Uh, and I, I frankly, I still miss that. Um, and I think part of the reason that academic medicine's always been attractive to me is the, the, the teamwork. And you really get, you fall in love with that in the military. And um, I think academic medicine done well is a, it, you know, should be a, a really engaged team-based environment. And uh, that's something I really enjoy about it. And, and talk a little bit about now running a medical group and how you look at that and how you approach that. Well, I think, um, you know, how I approach it is is to try to lead it with setting our priorities clearly. And, of course, our, our first priority is always providing excellent patient care, attentive patient care, meeting the patient's um, uh, where they are and providing uh, the most outstanding care that we can. And in order to do that well, we also have to support our faculty, you know, physicians, APPs, and staff. And so I think a lot of it is, uh, from my perspective, is is keeping our main goals clear and everything flows from that. Um, and patient care has to be number one. And I, I tell our teams, we I really want them to say yes to the patient. When there's a request coming from a patient, the patient needs to be seen, the patient needs some accommodation. We're going to bend over backwards to say yes and to see that patient as quickly and efficiently as we possibly can and, and try to care for them uh, like we'd care for a family member. And and if we if we do that, the rest of the organization will work really well. And if all of us are aligned with that mission and that goal, uh, then it will be, uh, you know, an environment where we all want to be. But we very quickly have to have to almost in the next breath think about supporting our physicians and team members because um, we know that caring for patients in that available and attentive manner can be difficult. And we know about the crisis of of burnout and the burden um, of, you know, continuously uh, what can sometimes feel like overwhelming responsibility for our team members. So I think I, I have the dual goal of providing superb patient care and caring for our team members as our, as our ultimate objectives. Any lessons from your naval career that translate well into your career leading a, a large medical group and before the Department of Urology? Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities. You know, I think we we haven't talked about COVID yet, but COVID uh, you know provided a crisis, and crisis leadership is a little bit different than everyday leadership. And um, I noticed some of the elements of what we did at UC San Diego during the pandemic very much parallel the 
response to crisis that I observed in uh, in the military. And I, I think the 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 key elements of that, of course, are around enhanced communication. Um, when things are changing really fast, the team members can quickly feel like they're not well informed. And so we really ramped up communication. Um, and I could go through that in some detail. I think the other part of it is visible presence. You have to really be with your team members uh, when we're asking people to do really difficult things. Uh, we have to be willing to do those things alongside them. And if we're if we're not skilled enough to do those things specifically, we at least need to be in their physical presence. So I think enhanced communication, visible presence, um, optimism and reassurance that we're heading the right direction, that we have the skills and the expertise to successfully uh, manage the complicated environment. Those are all elements that um, are very much shared by uh, by military leaders. I think the other the other thing I, I really noticed in the Marine Corps is that service leadership. Um, and for those who don't really have a lot of experience in the military, uh, the, the Marines have a bunch of really neat traditions that flow through to their ethos. And one of the traditions is that the most junior man uh, or person, man or woman on the team uh, eats first, and the most junior person on the team gets the first new equipment, and the person who eats last is the most senior member of the team. And that might surprise people who think sometimes about the military as being an authoritarian you know, environment, and it really is not. Um, uh, it really is an environment about you know, supporting, uh, supporting the, the war fighters uh, primarily. And, um, and so I think that's a good lesson for us as, as medical leaders. Uh, we have to make sure that every staff member Every person contributing in the hospital has our a full measure of respect, uh, and you know the hierarchy of uh, senior leadership um, really should be about the responsibility of caring for team members. And take a moment, Dr. Kane, on advances in prostate cancer and how that's looking. What do you see there? I know that you know you lead the group today. You're in charge of clinical affairs, in clinical affairs, but long-term expert on prostate cancer. What, what are you, what's going on there? What's, what's the advancements and sort of the, bring us up to date on that. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for asking that question. Yeah. I still am practicing a couple of days a week. I still operate one day a week and see clinic a day a week. And it's, um, it's a wonderful, uh, to keep me connected with uh, the large group of patients who I care for. And I've been on our guidelines panels and, and, and written a lot about uh, prostate cancer. I think the big things that have changed, you know, everyone knows that prostate cancer is controversial and the screening for prostate cancer is controversial because there's this you know, very high prevalence of prostate cancer and somewhere on the order of 30 to 40% of diagnosed prostate cancers are so slow growing that they may not cause harm. Uh, in the lifetime of a patient. And we know that the autopsy incidence is is high if we look at people who, 70-year-old men who die from other causes, and we do an autopsy, we'll see uh, low-grade, low-volume prostate cancer in about half of those men. So it shows there's this incredible background of low-grade prostate cancer uh, in the environment. And yet, on the other hand, it's the second leading cause of cancer-related death in American men. 
right? So how do you jibe those two facts? And um, in 2012, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force looked at all the data around screening and detection and said, you know what, the, the screening of prostate cancer is leading to overtreatment and the burden of overtreatment is, you know, changes in sexual function and urinary function. And that is outweighing the benefits of saving lives. And sadly, when we moved away from PSA screening, what we saw was an increased incidence of higher grade prostate cancer. So I think today in 2021, what we've found is a, is a balance that allows us to be to, to be selective about screening and to particularly be selective about treatment. So if a man's diagnosed with low-risk prostate cancer, we're now, and really have been for a number of years, really embracing not doing active treatment, but rather doing active surveillance. And active surveillance is a process of carefully following that patient to ensure they don't have an aggressive prostate cancer, but avoiding radiation or surgery. And uh, MRI has really helped us in that regard. The, the uh, MRI has really developed quite a bit uh, in prostate cancer, um, such that it's a much more reliable tool than it was uh, years ago. We also now have genomic risk stratification. So instead of just thinking about grade and stage, we can do um, relatively sophisticated tests looking at the somatic genetic changes in the tumor that give us even a more rich impression of, of risk. And then finally, our therapies are better. Uh, our therapies with radiation therapy and surgery has evolved to be, to be better from the perspective of lower risk for the patient with more consistently good outcomes. And then finally, the area that's really changed pretty dramatically is systemic therapy. Um, and the effectiveness of systemic therapies has really changed and improved. Uh, in 2006, uh, we really only had hormonal therapy, and docetaxel is a chemotherapy agent that was finally developed for men with prostate cancer in 2006. Now, between 2006 and, and 2021, in, in those 15 years, we now have nine medications FDA approved for men with advanced or progressive prostate cancer. And each of those clinical trials that, that have supported the approval of those medications show better and better outcomes. So now when I see a man who, who has sadly recurred or progressed or is newly diagnosed with advanced disease, the, the landscape and the hope for a consistently good outcome is, is really much better. And we don't always cure men now with advanced disease, but we certainly give them much more hope of, of, of better outcomes because uh, the research is really impressively advanced. So there's a lot going on, but it's really a much better landscape for the care of men with prostate cancer today. Magnificent. Thank you very much, Dr. Kane. Let me ask you one other question. I mean, what, what a broad career you've had and, and really remarkable from being a leader in the Navy, a leader uh, working in combat zones, zones to leading a great institution today, UC San Diego, the medical group, and leading Department of Urology. As you look at 2021, what are you most excited about? What gets you going each day? What, what gets you excited this year? Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. I, I think a lot of us feel like we put our both our personal and our professional lives um, almost on hold this year because of the pandemic. And of course, those of us in healthcare, you know, had a huge responsibility to care for those who were ill and 
Um, we had to turn off our health systems, turn them back on in terms of, you know, caring for patients, figure out how to do it in the midst of a pandemic, uh, and then finally, you know, participate in clinical trials and launch the vaccine. So we, we've been busy, but what we didn't do is we didn't continue with all the improvements that we'd envisioned a year ago. If I looked at with you uh, or your listeners, our, our project list from February 2020, you know, we stepped away from almost all of those improvement projects because we had to deal with this crisis. And now what I'm excited about is going back to those projects to improve our health system for our patients and for our uh, physicians, faculty, uh, APPs, and our, our other providers. Things like improving you know, care coordination, care navigation, um, referral management, making sure we're being really consistently excellent in responding to referrals, uh, our telehealth optimization. All these things sound like management details, but from a patient's perspective, it really is the difference between having a health system that feels easy and professional to having a health system that feels clunky. And uh, so I'm excited to turn back to those things uh, to make sure that we're really responding to our patients' needs. I think the other thing is, you know, we often don't think about our medical students or residents who are training in the pandemic. Uh, remember, their experience was totally different. Um, they didn't always have the rotations that they would have had. They, they really had, you know, if you think about a a surgical resident might have five years of training. Well, more than a year of that training has been disrupted and, and certainly dramatically changed. So I think the other thing is I want to make sure that our medical students and our residents get the full measure of our educational um, engagement uh, so that they really feel like they're back on track if they feel like they've missed something uh, during the year of the pandemic. And I think, you know, almost parallel with that, uh, is we want to make sure that our that our faculty who've who've borne the responsibility of everything I've just said, right? I, I haven't been able to do any of this uh, personally. This is all our faculty and physicians and APPs doing it. We need to remember that they've had a difficult year, that they need our support, that many of them need rest, and so I think getting back and and you know both. Uh, really supporting those team members in intangible and intangible ways is the other thing that I think will help our, uh, you know, healing might be a little strong, but certainly our sense of, of support and gratitude uh, to our team members. Thank you very much, Dr. Kane. What a pleasure to visit with you today. Thank you very much for joining the Becker's Healthcare podcast. It's an honor to be with you, Scott. We appreciate uh, what you do in healthcare. Thank you.